Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi, thank you for putting me first. And our senior writer, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom. Shalom. Have you guys not noticed that I switch you up every yeah, week? Yeah, every time I have to follow Liel, I'm like, hey, and he's like said something in Arabic. Yeah, but every like, time that you show off. <laughs> but every time that you don't do it, Mark, it's sexist. Today we'll be talking with two Jews because we, <laughs> two Jews with Gentile names. We thought we were booking a guest Gentile, but even that person with a Gentile name we was Jewish. We were tricked. <laughs> An abundance of Jews. One is Lor- Assimilation has won us over. One is Lawrence Douglas, author of The Right Wrong Man, about the many trials of John Demyanyuk, and the other is novelist Jessamine Hope, author of the very wonderful novel Safekeeping. But first, a little news of the Jews. The Guinness Book of World Records has named the world's oldest man, Israel Crystal. He's 112. He lives in Haifa, and he survived, among other things, Auschwitz. By the end of the war, wow, we went I'm Holocaust. Sorry. Yeah. He survived, among other things. Yeah, among what other else? things. Like, you like know, the really over? hot summer of 1983, <laughs> the, uh, you know, bubblegum shortage of 72. The yeah, rock shortage of, like, exactly. 2015. Uh, and it's... He's a survivor. <laughs> anyway, we are proud that he, the oldest surviving man in the... No, well, yes, he's the oldest surviving man. There's an older woman somewhere in America. Of course I think, there is. I think she's black. Have you noticed that the oldest person is always either... A Jew or a black woman? I've been following the Guinness Book for a long time. There are a lot of those like Ashkenazi super, what are they called? Super? Man, Whoopi Goldberg, according to that logic, is living for fucking ever. Forever. (laughs) Super centenarians or something? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's always either a black woman who actually, like, her mom was a slave, or it's a Jewish guy who actually, like, was moments away from the incinerator when he liberated himself and 20 others. It's like. Ben and Jerry have given their, their bracha to Benny Sanders. with uh, They've endorsed him with their ice cream, Bernie's Yearning. Yeah. It's mint that sounds so gross. No, I, no, it, wait. That word, like Bernie's Yearning. Bernie like, yearns. But like it just seems like a gross Bernie has lust in his heart. He'll be our second president who and lost the amazing, in his heart. And the amazing thing is the ice cream's completely free, right? Everyone everyone deserves that <laughs> no, ice cream. No, no one has to pay to share it. for the ice cream. It's mint chocolate chip ice cream, but all the chocolate is at the top to represent the accumulation of wealth to the top 1% of the population. And to get even distribution of the chocolate throughout, you have to whack it to bits with a spoon. It's amazing. God, that guy doesn't have any fun. It's metaphorically strong. It sounds delicious. I, I, there's nothing I don't love about that. What would the Hillary ice cream flavor be, then, <laughs> according to that logic? Like a restrained cookie dough. Yeah, like a muted. Uh, a muted, but, but a with... Mu- a mute, muted maple. But with shrill top notes of... Uh... Mark, how dare you? Yeah, that's really sexy. All right, we're going to put it to our listeners. Could you could you guys write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and propose what... Hil- First of all, what would it be called? Hillary's what? Or Rodham's... I'd like to get the Rodham. Yeah. In. Um, Rodham Road. Rodham Rodham Road. (laughs) (laughs) And we've peaked already. We're five minutes in. We've peaked. I'm going to go. Last Friday night uh, at a high school basketball game outside Boston, things turned ugly. When 50 to 75 students, they estimate, from Catholic Memorial High School chanted anti-Semitic slurs. In fact, the oldest anti-Semitic slur at students from the heavily Jewish Newton North High School. So first, the students from Newton North chanted Sausage Fest at the students from the Catholic Boys School because Catholic Memorial does not have girls. And the Catholic Memorial students responded with, you killed Jesus, you killed Jesus. As a Western Massachusetts guy, let me say this is a fabulous story. This is exactly what we thought of Boston, (laughs) which is good high school basketball, total hooligans, total thugs. They're basically mini, they're going to grow up to be Bruins fans. Um, But I was impressed by the theological literacy of this all. Like, who knew that the you killed Jesus slur was even still current among the 17-year-old 
you know, dead yeah. on the Needham crowd. It's like a real old school <laughs> insult. But I don't understand. How are how is one boys basketball team yelling sausage fest to another boys because basketball team? The the reason for that is because Newton North is co-ed. I understand Catholic that. Memorial actually has no girls at the school. But it's a boys like school. that seems like such a silly insult. And then to like escalate from there to like you killed our Lord and Savior is like, whoa. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's but a wouldn't you proportion love, problem. Wouldn't you love if all like sports cheers were like theologically based? <laughs> like the Nicene Creed sucks. The Nicene like give me a P, give me an R, give me an E. What does it spell? Prelapsarian theology. Yay! Like, Westminster Confession blows. It would be so great. The Boston Globe wrote that some had construed Sausage Fest as homophobic. All I have to say is whoever wrote that for the Boston Globe doesn't understand schoolyard taunts in oh, Massachusetts. Say, ever wrote this for the Boston Globe with some New York Jew <laughs> who moved to Boston seven months earlier. Because as everyone knows, Sausage Fest is just what you call a party without a lot of girls. A party without it's a lot with, of girls? With two, without enough girls. It's a sausage fest. Everyone knows what a sausage fest is. So I called my aunt Stacy, um, who lives in Weston, and I, I said, like, what's going on there? Like, what are people saying? And she said the pe- like the parents are up in arms. Everyone's really upset. The Jewish parents? or The, the Jewish parents are upset. The Goyim. The Newton, like, the Newton Jewish parents are upset. The Jutons? The best thing is that this taunt got the Catholic Memorial students banned from like a, to- a big tournament game, which in high school basketball oh, is like the snap. worst thing that can happen. To be clear, the students' own administrators banned them from going to the game. So in the stands, rooting for them were only their alumni. The players got to go play, but their classmates couldn't show up to root for them. Oh, they were allowed to play in the tournament? They played in the tournament where they lost. They lost to Cambridge Ringe and Latin. They're out now. Oh, I only read the headline. Uh, you know what, where the streets are hard is London, where a Muslim Uber driver was sentenced to 15 days of anger management sessions and 100 hours of community service for the 2014 incident in which he responded to being stuck in traffic by yelling at his Jewish passengers, Yehudi, for Jews. So apparently in London, according to the Muslim Uber driver, the Jews are at fault for traffic jams. Uh, you will be happy to know, Uber critics, that the driver, Rashal Mia, had his Uber permission suspended. He is no longer driving for Uber. But what's his rating? <laughs> that would be something to find out. Like, did I they... feel like I'd still give him a five. I'd be like, yeah, he's, like yeah. he's really stressed. <laughs> like, I just not... love the idea that even traffic jams are caused by Jews in this. Like, that's where his mind goes. Speaking of Uber and Jews, I had I had like a terrifying slash enlightening experience the other day. Um, I ordered an Uber and I looked. They they give you the name of the driver when they confirm the ride. And I looked at the name of the driver. It was Liel. It was Hashem. God? And I was like, Hashem. Is nine minutes away. Abu Hamidi is coming for me. I never thought I'd meet him quite this way, but okay, this is lovely. So I walk into Hashem's car. What, what, did, what does God drive? It's like, you know what? Uh, he, he, Toyota uh, Camry. Yeah, no. Something he, like it's, sturdy. It's, it's, a, it's a Honda. Uh, I walk into Hashem's Honda and he said, you know, would you like some water? I was like, well, you know. Not quite how I was told about heaven, but okay, yes. Thank you for that. And then Hashem uh, carried me on his wings uh, to to downtown. Did you ask him? I mean, to... Hashem? Well, now that's interesting because, of course, Jordan is the Hashemite kingdom, right? I did not right? ask Hashem about his... One does not, you know, query Hashem. 
<laughs> That's just the ways of Hashem like, are okay, strange. What about that burning bush? The traffic choices of Hashem were also very strange. Does he, he took use ways absolute... or does he like supersede oh, ways? He, ha- he, he uses ways and means. He, he has his own ways. On Sunday, a Donald Trump supporter leaving a rally in Cleveland yelled at some protesters <laughs> in front of people with video cameras, go to Auschwitz, go to fucking Auschwitz. This came just days after another Trump supporter, 69-year-old Birgit Peterson, raised her arm in a Nazi Sieg Heil salute after a campaign rally in Chicago was canceled due to protests. Ms. Peterson, who was born in West Berlin in 1946 and was a naturalized American in 1982, said that she took offense to the comparison of Mr. Trump to Hitler. Now, I want to know, did you guys buy this at all? Her excuse was that she was teaching them how to do the Sieg Heil correctly because these nincompoops were screwing up the Nazi salute. They said Trump is a second Hitler, Ms. Patterson said. I said, do you know what that sign stands for? Do you know who Hitler really was? I make the point that they are demonstrating something they had no knowledge about. If you want to do it right, you do it right. You don't even know what you're doing. She's like, I know from Nazi salutes. I know from Nazi salutes. I feel like it all got like very scary this weekend, like super depressing. I, I think you're just, you know, you're just liberal media it's true. bias. The guy who said go back to Auschwitz, I mean, the full sentence was probably... Go back to Auschwitz so you could learn the horrible uh, injustices of the past. (laughs) Or go back to Auschwitz because I hear March of the Living is really lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I hear there's a kitschy museum there. (laughs) I'm just like surprised he pronounced it right. Because you're like looking at that guy and you're like, did Auschwitz just come out of his mouth? Like this like flannel clad man. Although that's actually more scary because that tells you he's been thinking about oh, yeah. it. That's right. Thinking it was and reading about it online. Thing, exactly. He's been on some choice websites. That he, has. he had that great wraparound mustache, that thing that really says... That, Trump supporter? Yeah, that he's got the full... He had the full Trump supporter mustache The mustache on. that really says Obersturmenführer <laughs> pretty, pretty well. That really says go back to Auschwitz. Do you guys, in all, in all seriousness, do you guys think of the Trump, the Trump community as having proto-fascist or potentially fascist elements within it? I think it's very welcoming to those groups of people in a way. It's a safe space for them? Yes, in a way, free of microaggressions, Um, in a way that most campaigns don't try to seem. It's a big tent. (laughs) I I really don't understand at this point why any self-respecting Jewish organization would give this man a platform. Yeah, he's going Uh, to APAC, right? I I don't understand why that is possible. I think that is an absolute fucking travesty. If Trump's there, they should all be skipping it. They should just, I mean, it would be a great chance. Right. Because no matter their politics, they should all be united in avoiding Trump. This is is beyond politics. Trump is beyond politics. Agreed. Agreed. Trump Trump is about, you know, the fundaments of, you know, our our 200 and something odd year experiment with democracy (laughs) uh, teetering at the verge of collapse. This is bigger than that. But I also feel like the the Big Ten Republican Jewish Coalition and the actual Republican Jewish Coalition are actually, you know, wield significant power and could do could possibly be one of the few groups that actually could make some sort of stand now and have it mean something when it for most people, it's like a little too late. So if Rubio drops out by the time this show airs, Leo, where does President, where does, President where does, Ted Cruz, we welcome you with open arms. The Leibovitz support goes to Cruz. Oh, the Leibovitz oh, support. He's so uh, creepy. Oh, you know, his face. The Onion had this great line the other day. It was like, Cruz leads by far among people uh, in yard disputes with their neighbors. <laughs> it's pretty much that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah. Um, at least he's not insane. You may ask yourself,
usually we have a guest Gentile, but this week, instead of getting a guest Gentile, we just booked two guests with Gentile-sounding names, and they both turned out to be Yids. Uh, Jessamine Hope hails from Montreal. Is that right? From Dollard. It's kind of like the Staten Island of Montreal. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of the city, but, you know, when you say you're from Dollar, they're like, okay. Interesting. Um, And she spent time on a kibbutz in Israel, perhaps the same kibbutz Bernie Sanders was allegedly at, though. We don't know. We don't know. And she moved to New York City 20 years ago. She's of Catholic, Italian, and Jewish-Latvian descent, but is herself a Jewess, married to an Israeli Yoav who hails from Tel Aviv. Is that right? Yeah. He was born in Tel Aviv, but he came to the States. He was about two years old. So he's he's really an Israeli-American. So you guys, you can communicate in English. We do communicate in English. <laughs> when we communicate, it's in no, English. No, he got, he got his PhD at MIT by, by doing it in Hebrew entirely. <laughs> a mass in nuclear physics. But wait, wait. Most important, she is the author of a new novel called Safekeeping, which all three of us have read down to the very last word. And love. And love. love. And yes. Liel wrote about for Tablet, which we'll put, in our, we'll put a link up in our newsletter and online. Um, so where'd you get the idea for safekeeping? Well, I, as you said, I spent um, some time on a kibbutz in Israel. And uh, safekeeping, the, the title is, on some level, every character in the book is looking for safekeeping, but also the larger story of the Jews, how they've been looking for safekeeping for centuries. And the idea was that they found safekeeping in Israel. So I was very inspired by my time on the kibbutz and really wanted to capture what it was like to be on a kibbutz in 1994 when the kibbutzim were kind of coming to an end, they were privatizing. So I wanted to capture this society before it was gone. It's about a uh, Lower East Side kid named Adam who is yep. not um, healthy. He's no. <laughs> he's a bit of a drug addict and a loser. And, but he has this family brooch that he wants to return to his grandfather's long-lost girlfriend, whom his grandfather met on the kibbutz in 1947 or 48. Right, when he um, was a Holocaust refugee on the kibbutz. Right, but the girlfriend had been there since the early 30s when she left Germany. To right. Go, right, she she went to you know, pre-state Israel and founded so, the kibbutz. So it's a drug addict <laughs> who's who's a, a shliach for a, a brooch that's going to get to uh, his grandfather's n- now in her late 80s ex-girlfriend, if she's still alive, maybe. The book for me, um, so it started a little slow because I thought, I just don't care about a brooch. Okay. And then, you know what pulled me in was the, the drug addiction. And that was actually one of the most haunting depictions of drug addiction. I've, he's really more of an alcoholic. He does the mm-hmm. drugs. He does the coke so he can stay up. And do exactly. more do more booze. The Coke helps him drink more. And um, I do have to ask, so you were a drug addict, obviously. I wasn't a drug addict, but I did date a crack addict for four years. When I mean, that's what people do when they move to New York City, right? So the full experience. Yeah, the full New York it, it experience. Is, it is on the uh, you know board the of chamber, chamber of commerce welcoming <laughs> official for right. sure. The important thing was was he Jewish? See the sights, date a crack addict. He was welcome not. He was a blonde, blue eyed guy from I mean, basically for, uh, throughout history, men have used women as their muses. So there's a couple of boyfriends who've made their way in, as characters into safekeeping. And one of them was this guy that I dated for four years in New York. He was he was clean most of the time we were together, but at the end he relapsed. It was one of the most traumatizing things that ever happened to me. So when I set out to write Adam, what I wanted to figure out is how much choice Adam has in actually taking that drink. Um, is he born too weak to resist? Or does he, if he really got up the energy, would he, the willpower, would he be able to resist it? And after living in Adam's head for eight years, I'm, I'm still not sure. Just like Adam's not sure, I'm, I'm not sure how much 
he could have resisted drinking. So for some of the book, he lives with his grandfather, who is his Holocaust survivor. And for me, the the most sort of tense relationship is like this grandfather who loves him and takes care of him and has sort of cared for him his whole life. Mm -hmm. But like who has survived these atrocities and then to have this grandkid who sort of seems a little bit like spoiled and Mm -hmm. willfully squandering. I mean, there's I guess willfully is is isn't a subjective word, but like just that relationship was so crazy, you know, this loving relationship between these two people. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of Jews often, if we're suffering from something, we tell ourselves, well, wait, why am I so upset about this if, you know, our forefathers survived everything, including the Holocaust? Um, So I think that Adam does deal with that guilt. Like, why is his suffering legitimate in comparison to his grandfather's suffering? And I think we all, when we suffer, it it feels real to us. And so I wanted to explore like why some of us can handle more suffering than others. So let's talk about handling suffering. Yeah. You, you, you're how old when you got to the kibbutz? <laughs> I was about 20. I okay. was 20. What, 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 what is that like? You've lived in Montreal, even the Staten Island of Montreal. Uh-huh. It was a relatively calm, you know, sane, sustaining environment. Uh-huh. And here you are at some crazed up kibbutz up north <laughs> with its volunteers and its local boys doing their thing. Arab T- field tell us, tell us Tell us about that. Um, it's so funny because I'm actually a person with a sense of humor, and yet everything I'm going to talk about is suffering and addiction and everything. We but think that's funny, though. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, when I, I went to the kibbutz on some level to escape my own um, life, like even though I grew up in Canada, my mom did pass away from cancer when I was a kid, and there was a lot of trouble at home. And when I was grieving, I became obsessed with Israel. Um, I would go to the library, I'd take out these books and look at these pictures of Holocaust survivors who had who had lost everything they'd ever loved and still, you know, found the passion to keep living and to start a new country. And I became obsessed with Israel. So I actually went to Israel on some level because of my own grief and um, was really happy there. And yeah. it's not like the books. It's not like the books, no. But it actually was... Fun. There's, you know, some guy, like... there's some guy named Tzachi saying, hey, you want to make out in the uh, laundry? Exactly. And yeah. that was great. I, I, <laughs> I, I, no, I really think it's a time-honored American tradition to fall in love with Israelis when you're young. And uh, I, I, I participated in that tradition. I enjoyed it. I really loved being on the kibbutz. Is that where you met Yoav, now the Mr. Jessamine Hope? No. Um, I met another muse in the book. Um, <laughs> Please tell me this one wasn't a crack addict so also. Just between us, I lost my virginity on the kibbutz to a young um, Israeli soldier who had, five months before I met him, had been in a bus bombing. And he lost his eardrums and the lens in his right eye. So obviously, Obviously, Ophir. Um, yeah, the young Ophir is inspired wow. by by this guy. Was there? But was that, by the way, that the greatest pickup line in history? It's like, <laughs> I was in the suicide bombing. There only one thing make me feel better now. Yeah, uh, was that kind of the vibe? He actually called. I mean, after nine eleven, I'd happened to be in the in the. Uh, financial district when the towers came down he's like oh now you have a terrorist attack too <laughs> so i mean like he knew you know that there was some you know interest if if you've survived a terrorist attack to know well, that. i just want to say that like my full understanding of kibbutz culture from beginning to like 1994 is from your book so hey. i hope it's true <laughs> it is it's, i learned a lot i actually got a review um in a major magazine where the person said you know i don't like israel and i really don't like zionism but i have to say the history in this book is accurate. Um, Who so wrote that? 
it was psychology today. Um, <laughs> so, psychology how is that a review? Today. Like, that's, that's not crazy. Even so I, I really Put made sure the that sofa. the history was accurate because I knew that when you write about Israel, you have to be able to stand by what you said and not have anything debatable. So It's not a political book, but I think anyone who writes intimately and with the, the kind of attention to detail about Israel mm-hmm. that you have is in some sense, writing a pro-Israel book is writing a book that takes Israel very seriously and that doesn't damn it out of hand. And, you know, you probably live in one of those New York liberal neighborhoods where there's just all sorts of anti-Israel rage. And do you ever feel like you're the um, the Israel defender or the Israel expert at the dinner party filled with, like, ignorant anti-Zionists? Definitely. It is actually scary as an artist right now to come out with something pro-Israel. And I've had friends who are very thoughtful, very smart people. And if I use the term, if I say something like as a Zionist, they will say to me, oh, do you really have to use that word? That sounds so terrible. Uh, So they've really uh, absorbed this idea that Zionism equals racism. And I do feel that it's part of my job being a part of that community to make sure that they that they realize what Zionism really is. Um, when I wrote the book, as I said, I try to sit down with each character and inhabit them so that it doesn't ever feel like propaganda. You know, if you inhabit Ziva honestly and give her viewpoints honestly, then it's still a truthful portrayal of the experience. You have to be truthful because uh, propaganda isn't ever going to uh, move anybody. So I didn't set out to write a Zionist book, but I do inhabit Zionists, and through them, the reader gets to experience why the state of Israel is important to the Jewish people. And what about the dissolution of the kibbutzim as socialist paradises? Did you do you have a take on that? I and mean, that's one of the central quarrels of the book: is could they go on being communally owned and right. no private property, and or did they have to introduce a market element to survive? What did, did you have an opinion on that? Well, it, it, it is such an amazing idea, the kibbutz. So it did break my heart when I saw it falling apart. And I have had, you know, my dad, who's more on the right, he said to me, he calls me, he's like, I can't figure out from the book whether you're a communist or not. <laughs> um, so, uh, and that's, again, because you inhabit each character. And I can see what's so magical about the kibbutz. I can also see why it didn't work out. And, and really, the kibbutz is a microcosm for Israel in general, which used to be more community-oriented, less of an individualistic or consumerist culture. And and there's magic in that. But then there's also, you know, as an artist, as an American, I love I love individualistic culture. So, you know, um, I'm torn about it. I wish they still existed, but I probably wouldn't live on it. You got what you needed from it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's such a magical idea. I would love to do it. But, you know, I prefer to almost eat by myself. So I can't imagine eating with the whole town three times a day. Every day. I'm you know? so with yeah. you there. The, whenever I look at, like, co-housing, the communal kitchen is where it ends for me. Exactly. Like, yeah, I'm like, I just like, I need my like, no, no, not happening. You've been with these people for eight years. Um, and, yeah. and then there comes a time in which you, you know, click save for one last time and send for one last time, and they're out in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they don't belong to you anymore. Um, what is that like seeing them now, that they're independent of you? Are they independent of you? Do you continue to write their story? Yeah, I, I can't believe they don't exist. And and kind of as it, you know, if you knew someone who passed away or you knew someone that you never saw again and you wonder what they're up to and they kind of still continue their lives. Um, you know, I'm just going to bring my dad in briefly again because he had a 
big crush on Ulia. So he's like, oh, can I please have a sequel with Ulia living in New York um, or something like that? Uh, Getting dirty. Yeah. So I do sometimes wonder what what they're up to. Jasmine's and, and dad, you should you should give me a call. We should we should hang. He also likes guns. So there oh, you go. So perfect. Hallelujah. <laughs> I have an important question. Your dogs are named Golda Beanberg and Sidney Coleman Flufferstein. Yes. How did you know they were Jewish? Well, because I adopted them, and like any good Jewish parent, I, I, I'm bringing them up. Well, I don't know. You took them to the mikvah? <laughs> I mean, it's funny because when I first got Golda, I was walking her, and this guy stopped me. Because if you're single, by the way, like having a dog is a great way for meeting people. And he said, what's the name of your dog? And I said, Golda. And he's like, Golda, that's such a Jewish name. Like, does she hang out at Zabar's while you're at work? And I'm like, well, what's your dog's name? He said, Vinny. So I feel like maybe a lot of people do that. They kind of pass on their their ethnicity. That guy was good for about two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, that that was it. I did meet someone with a dog named Sadie Mitzvah Cohen, so she beat me. If she's listening to this podcast, I hope she is. Uh, I think she is. If you have a dog named Sadie Mitzvah Cohen, you're listening listening to Unorthodox. Jessamine, despite your name, your Jewish hope, thank you for joining us on this show. The novel is Safekeeping, available at Amazon. And, 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 and bookstores. And select independent bookstores. And Barnes & Noble. Figtreebooks.com. And thank you so much for joining us. Hey, if you don't get enough of us in your earbuds, this Sunday, March 20th, Leah will be talking about Leonard Cohen at the JCC of Louisville, Kentucky. See jewishlouisville.org for more. April 7th, the whole gang will be doing Unorthodox live at the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California. April 19th, I'll be at Williams College. And May 16th, we'll all be at American Hebrew Academy in North Carolina for a show that was initially snowed out. Um... Issue two of the print magazine is coming. It'll be here in time for Pesach. If you're not a subscriber yet, you really ought to be. Please text tablet to 66866 or go to tabletmag.com. One of our guest Jews this week is Lawrence Douglas. He is a professor at Amherst College, and he is the author of the new book, The Right, Wrong Man, John Demjanjuk and the Last Great Nazi War Crimes Trial. Mr. Douglas, first question, did I pronounce Demjanjuk correctly? Very impressively, I would say. I spent a lot of time on YouTube trying to get that right. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I'm very impressed. Um, so this is the trial that I feel like I've been living with all my life. <laughs> like first there was one trial, then there was another. And um, it seemed like he was always the Nazi war criminal being hunted. And then, of course, there you was... You think the... it was long for you? Imagine what it must have felt like for Demjanjuk. <laughs> or, or, or for Lawrence Douglas. Or for Lawrence Douglas. Um, how did you come to Demjanjuk as a, as a subject? What brought you to him? Uh, well, I um, I had written a uh, earlier book about um, Holocaust trials, and I was focusing largely on uh, Nuremberg and the Eichmann trial. Uh, but then I also was aware that um, the Mjolnik had been tried in um, Israel in the late 1980s. So I was aware of the trial, and then I just happened to be a, a visiting professor of law at um, Humboldt University in Berlin in 2009 when Demjanjuk was deported from the United States uh, to Germany. And um, at the time, a friend of mine who writes for a big uh, German newspaper knew that I'd written about Holocaust uh, trials, so he asked me to write kind of like a curtain-raiser piece about um, Demjanjuk's earlier trial in um, Jerusalem. And so that's kind of got the whole ball rolling. So I have to say, this this book is 
you know, it's it's unbelievable. It's it's first of all, I think one of the greatest like legal thrillers you, you could read that you know just happens to be all true, but also this really masterful work of kind of like historical legal philosophy. But but walk us through the the, the conundrums here. So it it begins with uh, a case of mistaken identity that is that seems pretty far fetched, right? It's a really it is really an absolutely bizarre story. So what you have is you have this uh, Ukrainian, Demyanyuk, who uh, ends up settling in the United States um, after the war, and he puts together kind of a nice middle-class um, life, uh, living in suburban Cleveland, uh, working as a machinist for Ford. Uh, in the mid-1970s, the uh, American prosecutors get word, receive information that this guy had served as a death camp guard. Uh, after long, extensive investigations, he ends up being ex- extradited to Israel to stand trial as um, this really notorious death camp guard who was known as Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka. Uh, he is tried in Israel. He's sentenced to death. Uh, he's convicted and sentenced to death. It ends up that during the appellate phase, um, the Israelis realized they have the wrong guy. They uh, This guy was never... Um, the, I've been the terrible of Treblinka, but what makes this thing kind of into one of these sort of legal perfect storms is they realize that he's not innocent either, really. They realize that even though he wasn't this Ivan the terrible of Treblinka, he was, and I don't mean to be too cavalier, it turned out that, that he was kind of like Ivan the not-so-hot of, <laughs> of, of a completely different death camp of uh, Sobobor. And, uh, and, yet, and yet they had tried him, you know, they tried him as the Ivan the terrible of Treblinka, not as Ivan the not-so-hot of Sobobor. Ivan so the fairly up, disreputable. Yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, Ivan they, the you don't want your daughter to date him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ivan the pretty absolutely. shitty. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And they convict him even though there are all these dramatic testimonies that I remember, you know, seeing in, in, in real time as a kid of people who look him in his eyes, you know, survivors of, of Treblinka and said, you know, there could be no doubt it is you. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's really pretty remarkable the mistakes that um, survivors that uh, you know survivors of trauma can make when they like, get on the witness stand, and and the thing about it is, you know, I, I think anyone who watches uh, a lot of uh, court TV or you know just thrillers on television, they know that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. Yet there was this kind of feeling, and I can and I can totally understand it that well these. Survivors of Treblinka, they're going to be better able. These survivors of great trauma, they're going to be more reliable eyewitnesses. And it turned out that they weren't. Now, this is territory that in some sense Hannah Arendt went over in Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she basically says that all these people parading forward to talk about what had happened to them may or may not have been exaggerating or telling the truth or whatever. And she takes a very, very dim view of what she saw as a a show trial of of Eichmann back in 1961. But you actually come out saying that this is not a show trial. This is a didactic trial. That is something we, a trial that can teach us about history. And you think it's, am I right that you basically decided it's a pretty good thing? Well, I, at least with regard to the, um, to the Eichmann trial, um, you know, I think Arendt is a woman who had a very complicated relationship with her own Judaism. And her criticisms of the Eichmann trial, you know, if you read her book, uh, the, uh, the criticisms are entirely intelligible, and they sound that and sound pretty convincing. If you actually compare what she's saying about the trial with the trial itself, 
I thought she was really pretty unfair to the Eichmann trial, that the Eichmann trial really was not a show trial in the sense that, I mean, I think at the most basic, you would say a show trial failed to be um, procedurally fair to the accused. And I don't think you can really, with a straight face, make that claim about uh, the Eichmann trial. I think it really did a pretty responsible job of treating Eichmann uh, fairly. If your book about Demyanyuk would have ended just at that point of, of you know the conviction and then the exoneration in Israel, it would still have been Dayenu. you know Dayenu. Yeah, it would still have been a completely you know remarkable book. But but it then has another half uh, that in some ways is even stranger and more astonishing. Uh, when he's extradited to Germany, where, where the legal philosophy up to that point uh, is very, very complex about who can and cannot be tried for Nazi-era crimes. C- could you explain what these people are thinking and why? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So the uh, end of the Israeli prosecution, that's just the end of the first phase of the uh, Demyanya case, and then he ends up, as you say, deported to Germany, and this is where it's He's uh, tried in 2009 through 2011, and the thing that makes that trial remarkable, it's not so much that it's remarkable that they're trying a kind of 89-year-old guy who I think all would agree that he was sort of at the bottom of the exterminatory hierarchy. He wasn't a particularly important figure at all, but what made the trial important is uh, in the decades after the war, German prosecutors amassed a pretty pathetic record of bringing former Nazi and Nazi collaborators to trial. And one of the biggest problems with these German cases is they treated uh, genocide as if it were like a garden variety murder. They treated it as if um, someone had gone into a convenience store and killed a clerk, but just happened to kill several million of them. And the reason that was a problem is because um, if you go in a convenience store and kill a clerk, you have to have eyewitnesses, you have to have direct you know, evidence connecting a specific person to a specific hands-on crime. And that was a really, really wrong way to think about genocide. Right. And, and the thing that I think made the trial in uh, 2009, besides bizarre in all sorts of other ways, but important as a legal matter, is that it, after, you know, 60, 70 years after the fact, German prosecutors finally got their minds around genocide. They finally figured out a way of thinking about genocide in which they basically said about Demyanyuk, like, this guy, look, he was a death camp guard. The death camp guards had one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to basically be accessory to murders. And so it doesn't matter if we don't have a hands-on case of him killing a specific individual. He's tried as an accessory to murder, and that was his job description right, as but a guard at Sobobor. They also, though, had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, you cannot try someone for something that was not a crime at the time it was committed. Uh, and, you know, one could, and in fact, Germans did make an argument that, well, you know, he was sort of following orders that were uh, completely according to law at the time. Yeah, even the German prosecutors had sort of backed off from that argument. They backed off from the argument that what he was doing was um, legal at the time. They backed off from that pretty early on in the history of what was at the time West Germany. That is, they recognized there was something criminal about exterminating people in a factory of death. Uh, but what they still continued to insist is they still said, look, if we're going to convict these guys, we still need evidence of a hands-on act of killing. And in the case of these death camps, that became kind of almost a, um, a grotesque obstacle because 
the very success of these death camps made that you had, meant that you had basically no witnesses whatsoever. And as we know, in a death camp, it's not really hands-on killing. It's industrial, factory-like uh, production of death. So since then, since that legal philosophy has changed, there have been a lot of investigations, I think a few summers ago, into like 50 suspected former Auschwitz guards, 40 of whom are still alive. There have been a lot of people who are, you know, deemed unfit to stand trial. There's sort of like a mass investigation into all these people. Does, is this more and you see these like 90 whatever year old old guys who like at some point was like the bookkeeper of Auschwitz. Is there more of like a psychic value to these trials or to these proceedings than a legal value in some way? Uh, I think there it. The, the legal value, it's not a tremendous legal value, and I think you're right, there's a psychic trial. So, for example, the one you just um, alluded to, this Oscar Gronig, uh, the so-called bookkeeper of Auschwitz, I mean, he was just convicted this uh, past July, and he was convicted under the uh, theory that was embraced by the court in the Demianyuk case. And one thing that I do think was kind of important about that is, at the time of the Demianyuk trial, um, when he was convicted in 2011, some of the criticism was, oh, Look, the guy was a Ukrainian, he was not a German, he was never a Nazi, he was just a collaborator. Uh, it's sort of grotesque for us to be convicting as the last trial uh, someone who was never a Nazi and never a German. And um, so I think the, these more recent trials, there's one actually going on right now, this guy named Hanig, and the um, Gronig trial, uh, which ended in July, I think they were symbolically important, in which they said, look, we are using this precedent for going after Germans. And um, and the thing that I found pretty interesting is, even though I've heard here people a little bit doubtful about the wisdom of trying 90-year-old men, I didn't hear similar doubts in Germany. Um, in Germany, there seemed to be a pretty broad consensus about the uh, justice and importance of trying these characters even 70 years after the fact, assuming, of course, that they're healthy enough to stand trial. And obviously, there's a power and powerful incentive for these 90-year-olds to now play... Um, I thought the one of the best moments in your book came near the beginning where you talked about the performance art that was Demyanyuk on his cot. At first he started moaning and then they told him as the trial went on to tone it down and the moaning yeah. went down. Um, Lawrence Douglas, thank you so much for joining us. The book is The Right Wrong Man, John Demyanyuk and the Last Great Nazi War Crimes Trial. Thanks so much. Do we have any Mazel Tovs this week? My Mazel Tov this week is to the awesome Sarah Silverman who went on Conan as Hitler and denounced these comparisons to Donald Trump. And that was pretty badass. <laughs> I missed that. Said, Trump, he gets it. But, like, stop comparing him to me. He ain't the real deal. Yeah, basically. Liel? My Mazel Tov is to the ride-sharing app Via, the Uber killer. Uh, which this week had a really smart competition among private schools in New York. Uh, parents could vote, and the winning school got, I think, $1 rides for the rest of the month. Do you think Dalton won? Do you think Collegiate won? No, brother. Who the won? Jews won, because we won't pay retail. My <laughs> kid's school. Congratulations to all. $1 ride all around. Breaking, right. shattering stereotypes left Sh- and right. Shattering st- Well... Jews good with numbers. My daughter, Rebecca, gets my Mazel Tov this week for winning the pie memorization competition for Pi Day 314 uh, for the whole school, K through 8. I believe it's probably the first time a fourth grader has ever won it. She got up to about 147 digits. Mic drop.
If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of Jewish experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, which is on the web at tabletmag.com. The show is edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivory and Alyssa Goldstein. Rabbinic supervision this week by the states of Florida and Ohio. Kosher slaughtering by the Newton Tigers, who made it farther than anyone expected a predominantly Jewish high school's basketball team to make it in the Massachusetts Division I Eastern District tournament. So, so racist of you. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. Shalom, friends.